So something kind of funny, um, to me anyway, I was studying about, you know, baptism, the different modes of baptism and the history and stuff. And there was a particular group, the first group kind of in the, um, in the modern era that moved from the sprinkling to the dunking. And they were called the Dunkards. Isn't that funny? That, that became their name. They were known as the Dunkards. Um, baptism is actually, it's a very interesting topic. And for me and for those of you guys who, who like history, who like kind of delving into some of the culture of the Near East, it's a very interesting study. And I'm going to try to approach the topic this morning in a couple of ways. I kind of want to talk about the, the roots of baptism, kind of the, the historical background, the, the, the historical significance of baptism. And then I want to talk a little bit about the spiritual aspect of it and what it means for us today. Now, I think that most of us who have been around the church for a while Right? Most of us who have sat through teachings in the Gospels and stuff, those of us who have a grasp on the Bible, if I was to ask you guys to recall the first occurrence of baptism in scriptures, what would you probably mention? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was a prophet, and he was a forerunner of Jesus. And we find in the opening chapters of Matthew, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he was called the Baptist because he was a baptizer of people, right? And um, so he's out there in the wilderness and we're gonna see in a little bit that baptism is an identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does that work with John the Baptist out baptizing in the wilderness? Right? That is to say, how could John have been baptizing people into that, into the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ years before Jesus went to the cross? I mean, this is before John even knew that Jesus was the Messiah, He's out there baptizing people in the wilderness. Simply put, right, he wasn't baptizing people into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember, we're talking about John the Baptist here, right? Not the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John. And we see that John's baptism was different than the baptism we see later on in the New Testament. John's baptism was connected with the Old Testament law. It was connected with repentance from sin. It was connected with the Old Testament and what's referred to as intertestament tradition. And intertestament is sort of the uh, vocabulary word of the day, right? Intertestament just means that period of time in between the Old Testament and the Right? It's in between. So it's called the intertestamental period. And there was a lot going on. Judaism really developed during that time. A lot of kind of rabbinical traditions came about during that time. Isaac, that was a little late on the slide there, buddy. A little late. Um, <laughs> and it was during this intertestamental period, that's when like, 
the Maccabean revolution took place and all the stuff with Antiochus Epiphanes and, and, and when the Greeks came in and the Romans. And so a lot of stuff happened in between Malachi and Matthew, right? During that 400 year period. And um, sort of a, as a point of trivia, John the Baptist in a sense was really the last Old Testament prophet. Right, and he prophesied concerning the beginning of Jesus's ministry and about what Jesus was gonna do. But you may remember back in the Old Testament, many of the Levitical laws had to do with being unclean, right? And a lot of times you would do something and you would become unclean. Maybe you accidentally touched a dead body and you were ceremonially unclean. Or a woman, after she menstruated, for a period of time, she was ceremonially unclean. Or after a woman gave birth, I almost said somebody, but I didn't want to play into the narrative of today. <laughs> after a woman gave birth, she was ceremonially unclean for a little while. And then what would happen is they would have to, they would take this ceremonial bath and they would be, declared clean again. In the Hebrew, this word is mikveh. And this word mikveh, in its most literal sense, it means to gather together. But it came to mean in Jewish tradition, uh, the gathering together of fresh water in a container, right? So you had this container, a cistern of water, and the rabbis would perform what was called tevlah, and this act of Tevla is when a person, when they needed to be ceremonially bathed, as I said, after childbirth or, or touching a dead body or whatever, they would go through this ceremony. And interestingly, if a Gentile, right, if a non-Jew wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to go through this ceremonial washing where they would get into a pool of water and be immersed and come back out. Right? And so this idea of, of baptism, it existed in the Old Testament and during this intertestamental period. And so John the Baptist, he comes onto the scene out of the wilderness Right, and he's baptizing there in the Jordan River. And Matthew chapter three, it records the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist, he's this, he's this radical firebrand, right? And people come from all over to hear him preach. And he's, he's condemning the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and he's got this whole ministry, this whole message of, of repentance, and scripture describes him as kind of this crazy guy out there wearing this camel fur jacket with a leather belt, eating grasshoppers and honey. And, and he was a Nazarite like Samson. So he's got long, wild hair. And he's out there meet, preaching this, this message of repentance. And basically it's an Old Testament message. And he's baptizing them in this ceremonial way ritually, ceremonially cleansing them of their sins. And interestingly, as John is out there baptizing people in the wilderness, Matthew chapter three, who shows up? 
Jesus shows up. And he says, hey, John, you want to baptize me too? And John's like, whoa. He starts to recognize who Jesus is. And he says, you know, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. Not, 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 I, don't, I, I shouldn't be the one baptizing you. And Jesus says in verse 15, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, John, we need to do this thing. Don't stress, it's part of the plan. So John baptizes Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So as Jesus, after he's baptized, walks out of the water, it says that the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. Consequently, that's why many Calvary chapels, you know, they have that little dove symbol, you know, behind the thing or on the bulletins or whatever, kind of because of this, because of Matthew chapter three. It's symbolic of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and our, our reliance on the leading and the direction of the Holy Spirit. But I want to draw your attention back to verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming, remember, Jesus hasn't showed up at this point. He says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I'm not going to get into this morning the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what all that is right now. I just want to point out that John recognizes that his baptism as a different kind of baptism than the baptism that Jesus would be doing. And the baptism we see unfold later in the Gospels and in the epistles. Right? It's a different kind of baptism than what was occurring in the Old Testament. This sort of ritualistic, ceremonial removing of sins. Right? When Jesus comes, when Jesus came, but from John's point of view, right, Jesus will actually remove our sins, right? So we just looked at John's baptism and I want to explore another avenue briefly. We've talked a little bit before about types in the Old Testament. And when we talk about types or we talk about typology, we're talking about foreshadowing. You know, and foreshadowing, you know, is, is a literary mechanism, right? When, when an author is writing and they're kind of giving clues and hints as to what's going to happen in the future. And typology, a type is similar to that, except it's, it's an event that actually happened in, in some point in history that's kind of giving us clues. It's a prophetic event that's kind of pointing towards what's going to happen in the future. And I think the most prominent example of that is in Genesis, remember, when Abraham goes to offer his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah, right? That is a, a, a typology, a picture of, of Jesus going to the cross, right? In that picture, we have a father and a son, 
going together on a three-day journey with the father planning on sacrificing the son. And in that story, we find the son carrying a bundle of wood on his back as he walks up this hill. And as it happens, this hill, Mount Moriah, where this event was taking place, you may or may not know this, but that was a place that would later be called Golgotha or the place of the skull, the very place that Jesus Christ was crucified. And so that's what typology is. It's sort of a foreshadowing of events that are gonna happen in the future. And in scripture, there are a few typological pictures of baptism in the Old Testament. Um, it's said that baptism is a picture of new creation, of judgment, and of deliverance. And first, let's look at the new creation part, right? The Old Testament prophets were well aware of how sin had brought destruction, how sin had ravaged God's people and all of creation. And remember the prophets spoke about the, the coming new creation and how there would be a new heaven and a new earth. You can look at like Isaiah chapter 65. And, and we see in scripture that the church is the beginning of this new creation. And remember Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, interestingly, the first creation, it involved water and the spirit, right? Genesis chapter one, verse one and two. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So as far as baptism involves water in the spirit, it is a sign of the new creative work of God. Now, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter three and verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So baptism, your baptism, along with every other baptism, it's a picture of the renewing nature of God's kingdom. The old has passed away. And behold, all things have become new. Second, baptism is a picture of judgment, right? Because of the sinfulness of mankind, God spoke to Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 17, and he said this, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So the waters of the flood purified the earth. But this cleansing, we see it was a divine judgment. Right? And so the, the baptismal waters, in a sense, 
are a picture of, of judgment and of death. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And Peter, he makes a connection between the flood and baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, where, where he describes the, the water of Noah's day. And he says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, when we get into the baptismal this morning, you might notice that we don't stay in there all day, right? We don't have floaties in there. We don't take residence. I don't have a little mattress. I'm not gonna hang out in there after service, right? We get in and we get out because we are led through death by Jesus Christ. Baptism is a picture of salvation through judgment. Just as Noah and his family were delivered through the flood water, and just like the children of Israel were delivered by the Egyptian army, or from the Egyptian army, through the Red Sea, right? And that scene is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 21. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And so Paul actually, a thousand years later, he is recalling this event. And, and, and he calls this a, a, a type of baptism. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So we see the baptism is a sign of being delivered through the waters of death and coming out on dry land. And there are a couple more interesting pictures of baptism that for the sake of time, we're not gonna look at. But we have Joshua, when the Jordan River was parted, Noah or Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days, Naaman the leper when he was dipped down in the river and he was cleansed. All very interesting pictures of baptism if you wanna take the time to delve into that. But there's one more thing that I wanna try to look at this morning before we get to baptism. Spiritually, New Testament baptism is much more similar to circumcision than it is to John's baptism or that Old Testament baptism that we we're looking at. You may remember back in Genesis chapter 17, right? The Lord, he has this little meeting with Abraham. Abraham encounters God and the Lord institutes what's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. And the Lord says to Abraham, he says, look, you are going to be the father of many nations, Kings and princes and, and rulers are going to come from you. 
And he says, I'm going to establish my covenant between me and you, between me and your offspring. And he tells Abraham that eventually the Messiah will come from his family line. He says, look, the one who will save humanity from their sins, he's going to be your descendant. He says, but here's your side of the deal, Abraham. He said, every young male or every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. So the Lord says this to Abraham. And Abraham says, well, Lord, you know, I'm not actually sure I want kids. Seems like it might be a lot of hassle. Me and Sarah, we're good. No, Abraham does it. And not only does he do it, but somehow he convinces all of his servants and his son Ishmael to get circumcised as well. Now imagine the conversation that took place there. The Lord spoke to me and he said, you've been drinking a little bit, Abraham? Maybe we should wait till morning, rethink this a little bit. But apparently Abraham was quite a salesman. And so they did it. And the Lord says in verse 11 that circumcision is going to be a sign of the covenant between you and me. It's going to be symbolic of the agreement of the contract that we have. And this is what I want you to note here. Circumcision was an outward symbol of an inward commitment that the Hebrew people made to the Lord, right? The act of circumcision in and of itself didn't save the people, right? Abraham getting out the good knife wasn't what saved him and the people, right? It was the, the act of faith. It showed their commitment to the Lord. But over time, the Jews came to believe that it was the act of circumcision itself that brought salvation to the Hebrew people. See, they, they began over time to fundamentally misunderstand the point and the purpose of the act of circumcision. And I trust that as we unpack this, you can see the parallel between circumcision and the Christian act of baptism. Right? Baptism is not required for salvation. Now, let me be clear. It is a command from the Lord, right? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized yet, I better see you up here in the pool today. Um, you need to be baptized, right? If you are serious about following Jesus, you need to be baptized. But... If you die between now and then, you're still saved, right? You're, you're not going to go to hell because you didn't get dipped. And I think we see that evidenced by the thief on the cross, right? Remember when, when Jesus was, was there crucified and it says that there was a, a, a thief nailed on the right and a thief nailed on the left. 
And one of the gospels describes how, how both of the thieves, they were mocking him and they're, they're hurling insults at him and they're making fun of him. But over the course of time, one of the thieves, he recognizes something different about Jesus. And the spirit moves and, and he, he realizes who Jesus is. And remember, he cries out for Jesus to save him. And Jesus says to him, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Was that thief baptized? No. But Jesus clearly indicates that he was saved, right? But note this, and I'm not trying to contradict myself, and I'll unpack it in a second. But look what Jesus says in Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus says, whoever believes in me and is baptized will be saved. But if you don't believe in me, you're condemned. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say, if you don't get baptized, you are condemned. But he says, if you don't have faith in me, you will be condemned. Now, here's something interesting, and this is why I bring this verse up. This word saved in the Koine Greek is sozo. And I was listening to John Corson talk about this. And he says that this word sozo, this word for salvation, it refers to what he called the full orb of salvation. What does that mean? Right, he says that that word means saved not just in the sense of your soul not being condemned to hell, but, but it speaks of the full Christian experience. That word sozo, it refers to the healing and the restoration and the provision of the Lord. It refers to the fullness of the Christian experience that's available to us. And if you research that Greek word sozo, it definitely fits in that context. And um, what John Corson says is that baptism, and I don't want to say this wrong. Not, it's not like a video game cheat. But, but baptism, it sort of unlocks the full experience of salvation for the believer. And, and I'm not sure to what length I agree, but it's definitely an interesting thing to consider. Whoever believes and is baptized will experience the fullness of salvation. But whoever does not believe is condemned. People who are serious about Jesus will take this simple step of faith and get baptized. So we mentioned that baptism is a symbolic identification with Christ. What is the symbolism? Well, we talked about it a few minutes ago in Romans chapter six. Let's look again at verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Paul says that baptism is symbolic of death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, when we go down into the water, we're identifying with the death of Christ. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter two and verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that my old man, my old nature, my flesh, that sinful nature, it died with Christ. And that's what baptism is symbolic of, right? We go down into the water, it's like the old man dying. And when we come back out of the water, it's symbolic of, of, of the resurrection, of newness of life, of us becoming new creations in Christ. Remember, we referred back to 2 Corinthians 2.17 a few minutes ago. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is what baptism is symbolic of. The old man dying and the new man being reborn. So why get baptized? Number one, because Jesus said to. Right? Even if it wasn't explained there. Even if we didn't understand the symbolism, even, besides any of that, just Jesus saying it should be enough for us, right? Out of obedience, we need to be baptized. Second, because baptism helps us to walk in the fullness of our salvation. It helps us to experience all that the Lord has for us. And thirdly, because the act of baptism, as we go through that, we're identifying with our Lord and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Now, throughout church history, there's been a lot of debate on who should be baptized and how they should be baptized. First, the who, right? If you are a Christian, and you have repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. So in my mind, that excludes infants, right? That excludes infant baptism. It excludes kids who are, who are too young to understand the gospel message. If a child is old enough, faith in Jesus Christ, there's no reason why he shouldn't be baptized. Well, how to do it? Some traditions, you know, sprinkle a little water on your head. Some go for the full dip. Well, which is right? If I did it wrong the first time, do I need to redo it? Right? The word baptize is the Greek word baptizo. And in the original language, it definitely meant to submerge. I, I, I've heard that the word was used in the textile industry, right? If you were a, a producer of fabric, and so you, you, you wove some linen and you wanted to dye it to change the color, you would fill a, a vessel with water and dye, 
and you would take the fabric and you would soak it in that vessel of water and you would submerge it. And the fabric would take on the color of the dye. And so within the context of the Greek word, it definitely meant soaking, right? Submerging. And it's clear that in the Old Testament use, usage, they were, they were, they were submerging. They were, they were bathing, right? And in John the Baptist's baptism, right? It was a different kind of baptism, but it's the same word. And note John chapter three, verse 23. It says that John goes to Anon to baptize people because the water was plentiful there. Now, if you're only sprinkling water on people's heads, who cares how deep the water is, right? It doesn't matter. But if you're dipping them, the water at least needs to be this deep so you can get them under. And so I think that in the New Testament, people were submerged. They were dunked. They weren't sprinkled. To be honest, though, I don't think it really matters. Every first Sunday, we take communion and we use grape juice, right? We're not actually using wine like Jesus did. And it's not like the wine was magical, right? Baptism isn't magical. It's simply an expression of our love and identification with Christ. So if you were baptized in a church that's sprinkled, you don't have to redo it as long as you were a follower of Jesus Christ when you did it, right? If you have a medical condition that, that precludes you getting in the pool and you can only get sprinkled, I think you're okay, right? Jesus isn't sitting up in heaven. You, I don't know if I should count that one, right? He wasn't down for a full five seconds. We're gonna DQ that, throw the flag. So just to recount as we close, mankind is sinful. And there's a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus died to remove the penalty of sin. And as Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, believe and be baptized, and you will be saved. Baptism is an expression of that salvation. And if you have never been saved, you're in luck. Today's your day, right? Simply call out to the Lord. Even now as we continue in worship, just call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, forgive me. And it really is that simple. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and begin to, to walk with him. And if you've never been baptized and you didn't plan on getting baptized today, but you feel like maybe the Lord is leading you in that, again, you're in luck. I thought ahead. There's a few changes of clothes back there if anybody wants to. And all the clothes are roughly my size. So they may either be super tight or super baggy. But there, or you can just go home wet. That's an option too. It's not a big deal. It's a small price to pay for obedience.
But here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song together. And if you are planning on getting baptized or this morning even you feel the Lord prompting you to get baptized, as we sing this song, Matt's got a long one planned. Um, Go ahead and, and step back to the bathroom and get changed and then line up on the side here. And then after the next song, we're going to start the baptism and Matt's going to continue to lead us in worship as we, as we baptize people. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm excited. I'm excited to see people initiated into the kingdom. I'm excited to see people identifying with you. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would bless this time. And we pray for each person who's getting baptized this morning that you would, that you would just rest your spirit upon them, Lord. And Father, I pray for those who maybe you're nudging to get baptized right now and they're resisting, that you would just break their hearts and you would just compel them to obey, Lord. And lastly, we just pray for those among us who, who maybe don't know you, who maybe have never given their lives to you, Lord, that you would stir their spirits, Lord that you would break their hearts and that you would move them to a place of repentance. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.